Well, let's get into our message this morning, and we're going to do something a little bit different, and the next week we'll be back in our series on the life of Jesus, but I wanted to share a teaching with you that I had the opportunity to hear from the man I consider my pastor a few years ago that I found incredibly useful. It was really good, and so I know that he probably stole it from somebody else as well. But most of us as Christians hold to beliefs that we know are true, but many times we're unsure where in the Bible it says that. Well, where in the Bible it talks about that. Maybe somebody's come to your door representing another faith and they say something, you know it's not true, and they're like, well, where does it say that? And your response is, in the Bible. Where in the Bible? In the Bible, and that's as close as you can get. If you read through the writings of the Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, you will notice that he's constantly talking about how much he wants the believers to grow up in Christ, to become mature in Christ. He's not with them, and you sort of get his heartbeat that he aches for believers in these young, new churches to grow up in Christ as quickly as possible, because Paul says, when you're young, when you're immature in Christ, when you don't know your Bible, you are more susceptible to deception and the tactics of Satan. And so Paul's desire is get in the word, grow up in your faith, put down deep roots as quickly as possible so that you can be rock solid in your faith. And from the days of the first church all the way up to today, there have been people who come along with some new teaching, some new revelation, some new book. And I am dismayed today in the age we live in by how many supposed believers get caught up in these things, even in our time, simply because they don't actually know what the Bible says. You and I need to know the truth, and we need to be deeply rooted in our faith. So today, we're going to do a walk through the Bible that's going to cover the basics of our theology, of what we believe as Christians. We're going to do this in a way that's going to make it very easy for you to share this with somebody else. And so to get started, you're going to need your pen and your Bible. You're going to need your pen and your Bible. So the first thing we're going to do is we're going to go to the book of Isaiah in the Old Testament. We're going to go there. So you can start looking for Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 9. And as you find that, the first thing we're actually going to do is just on the inside flap of your Bible. If you open your Bible right on the inside flap, sort of top left, I'm going to have you write Isaiah 9, 6. So keep your finger in Isaiah, that's where we're going to be going. But just on the inside flap of your Bible, write Isaiah 9, 6. And then you can turn there in your Bibles, Isaiah 9, 6. I'll build in enough time here for people to use the table of contents in their Bible. (laughs) Isaiah 9, 6. You know, we're living in an age where there are many, many voices talking about truth, even within Christianity But what does the Bible actually say about truth, about what is the truth? Isaiah 9, 6 is a prophecy about the coming Messiah, Jesus, that was written hundreds of years before Jesus was even born. So on the inside flap of your Bibles, you've got Isaiah 9, 6. Now you're in Isaiah 9, 6, and this is what it says. It says, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor. And then what does it say next? Mighty God. You want to underline that. Mighty God. And then what's the next title it gives? The Messiah. Everlasting Father or Eternal Father. You want to underline that as well. Prince of Peace. So the Bible teaches all the way through the Old Testament that there would be a chosen one, a coming savior, a Messiah, the Christ, and he would be born as a child according to the prophecy in Isaiah 9-6. But he would also be the mighty God and the everlasting father. He would literally be God in the flesh. God would come to earth as a man and as we'll find out later would save us from our sins. And this is the dividing line between all that is Christian and all that is not. This is the starting point. If anybody holds to a belief system and says, we sort of believe the same thing, but they don't believe Jesus is God, that Jesus came to the earth as a man, then the conversation is DOA. It's dead on arrival. Can't even begin. You can't even begin to say, but we have all these other things in common. We do not have the only thing in common that matters. We do not believe the same thing. 
That's the starting point. All Christians believe that Jesus is God and came to the earth in flesh as a man. Every other belief system believes that Jesus is something else, but not God. Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus is not God. They believe he's Michael the Archangel. Mormons believe Jesus is not God. Muslims believe that Jesus is not God. The Unity School of Christianity believes that Jesus is not God. You should do us a favor and take Christianity out of their title. They believe he's simply a man who through continuous reincarnations worked out his karma, his personal junk, and simply got to the place where he lived a perfect life finally and ascended to enlightenment and oneness with the universe. Now, right next to Isaiah 9, 6 in your Bibles, I want you to write John 1, 1. Write John 1, 1, and then flip there. John is the fourth book in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Getting to the more familiar part of the Bible now. So write John 1, 1 next to Isaiah 9, 6, and then flip to John 1, 1. And the New Testament is going to keep driving the same themes as Isaiah 9, 6. John 1, 1 says this, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was, you'll want to underline with, was with God, and the Word, then you'll want to underline, was God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the original language, the word used for word is logos, and it simply means message, or it means word, in the sense of scripture. So here we are told that this word was with or alongside God, was with God, but it was also God itself. It was God. It was with God and it was God. Side note, this is one of those little nuances which point to the Trinity, that the word was with God, but the word also was God. And so right next to verse one there, I want you to write verse 14 or just V14. And then go down to verse 14, and you'll see it says this. And then you'll want to underline the next four words. The Word became flesh. The Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And we beheld His glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So this Word, this message, was with God and was God, and then became flesh. In the New Testament, it teaches that when the Messiah arrived, he would be God in the flesh. And so right next to that verse 14, I want you to write John 14, 8. John 14, 8. And then you'll just flip over a few pages until you get to John 14, 8. A few pages to the right. And I'll set the scene for you. It's the night of the Last Supper. Jesus is going to be crucified the next day. And in John 14, 8, it says this. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and yet you have not known me, Philip? And then underline this next sentence. He who has seen me has seen the Father. He who has seen me has seen the Father. And I love what Jesus says. So how can you say Show us the Father. This was Jesus' way of saying, you want to see God, Philip? You want to see the Father? You're looking at him. I'm right here. I'm right here. The Bible teaches when Jesus came to the earth, the Messiah came to the earth, he would be God in the flesh. And then next to that verse, I want you to write Galatians. If you don't know how to spell Galatians, you can just write G-A-L. Galatians 1, 6. Galatians 1, 6. If you're new to the Bible, you'll be turning to the right. You'll turn through Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, and then you'll be there. You'll be there. Galatians 1, verse 6. The Apostle Paul begins to tell us something he's very, very concerned about that he sees in the church in Galatia. Galatians 1, 6. The Apostle Paul says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, underline different gospel, which is not another, 
But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert or distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, underline we, or an, and then underline angel from heaven, angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you. Let him be, and then underline, accursed. Let him be accursed. That's interesting because Paul says, even if we or an angel from heaven comes to you preaching another gospel, a different gospel, he is accursed. He's cursed, and you need to treat him like he's cursed. It appears that the Holy Spirit anticipates that in the future, there may be an angel showing up, giving another gospel, a different gospel to people. We've seen that happen right here in North America. If you've heard of Mormonism, which gained notoriety a lot recently because Mitt Romney in the States, possible future presidential candidate, is a devout, high-ranking Mormon. What you need to know is that it is a gospel that was delivered by an angel, supposedly from heaven, named Moroni. As the story goes, the angel Moroni came to Joseph Smith and gave him a different gospel, a true gospel. Little side note, I don't have it in my notes, but I just wanna share with you. Understand that there are not just angels and demons. An angel is a type of being, just as a human is a type of being. There are angels and there are fallen angels. The angels who chose to ally themselves with Satan in his failed insurrection in heaven are still angels, but they are fallen angels. They're different from demons. So an angel shows up to Joseph Smith, gives him the gospel of Mormon. Very different from the gospel of the Bible. In Mormonism, Elohim, or God, is not the creator of the universe. It's going to get really weird here. He's simply a man who lived on another planet. He lived a perfect life, and because he achieved the perfect life, he earned the ability to become a god of his own planet. That planet was Earth. And so he was able to take the wives that he had when he was a man on this other planet, and they became his celestial wives. And through the process of their words, not mine, endless celestial sex, he was able to populate the planet Earth. So in this process, he produced two special sons, Jesus and Lucifer, who were both equal sons of God. The Bible teaches that Lucifer is a fallen angel, but in Mormonism, he's just simply a son of God, and so is Jesus. So furthermore, in Mormonism, Jesus came up with the plan of salvation, and it was accepted so the way that Elohim gets Jesus to earth in Mormonism is he assumes the form of a man one night, comes down to the earth, has sex with a young virgin named Mary. She gets pregnant. Elohim goes back up to heaven and Mary gives birth to Jesus. But here's the real sales pitch. If you, as a good Mormon man, live out your perfect life, you too could gain the opportunity to become God of your own planet. It's all in my CD set available in the back for $99.99. How to get your own planet. So both religions say Jesus. Both religions will call him the Savior. Both religions will talk about salvation. But despite saying the same words, are you figuring out that they mean very, very different things in our different contexts? Mormonism is a gospel that came from an angel from heaven. It's a very different gospel, and Paul wants to make sure we don't miss this warning. So in verse 9 of Galatians 1, he reiterates, As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. We can say the same things, but the meaning is very, very different. So right next to those verses, I want you to write Galatians, or G-A-L, Galatians 5.22. Galatians 5.22. Just a little bit to the right in that same book. This portion of Scripture talks about being filled with the Holy Spirit and what that looks like. It's important because there are a lot of voices within Christianity that will tell you that being filled with the Holy Spirit looks very different to what the Bible says it looks like. 
This is what it says, Galatians 5.22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such there is no law. The fruit of the Spirit, the result, the product, the manifestation of the Holy Spirit filling a person, one of those fruit is self-control. So you want to be very careful if you ever find yourself in an environment or a situation where people are telling you that the manifestation of the Holy Spirit, you being filled with the Holy Spirit will result in you losing self-control because that is the absolute opposite of what the Bible teaches right here in black and white. Some of you might be like me and come from a background where this was really prominent. I shared a few stories when we, when we did our series on the Holy Spirit. I've seen the pastor's wife dive front first from the stage into the arms of the church elders in the name of the Holy Spirit. That's the kind of church I grew up in, okay? You know, there's no problem that can't be solved by marching around the room seven times with a flag. That's the kind of church I grew up in, okay? It's called Jericho marching. If you don't know what it is, you're missing out. So I grew up in a church where this was really, really prominent, and it was taught, you know, if you don't lose control of your body, if you don't lose control so that you can no longer stand, you fall down, if that doesn't happen, then you're not really being filled. Maybe you have a pride issue. Maybe you're resisting the Holy Spirit in some way. But if you're so determined to be in control, then you're resisting the Holy Spirit. Be careful. Who was the most spirit-filled man who ever walked the face of the earth? It's Jesus Christ. He was the embodiment of the Holy Spirit. So you can safely and logically assume that being filled with the Holy Spirit will result in you and I behaving and being more like Jesus Christ. That's a reasonable assumption. I've shared this before. You can research this. The only record of people falling down in any situation that relates to God and his glory is that they fell down like a dead person because they were so overwhelmed by the power of God. It was terrifying. In other words, if you said to them right after, would you like to do it again? They would say no because they fell down like a dead man. That's what it was like. It was terrifying. They were awestruck by the power of God. Very, very different to what we see happening in some churches that kind of misinterpret what the Bible says about this. Next to verse 22 and 23, I want you to write Ephesians 4.14. Ephesians 4.14. It's the very next book in your Bible, so just turn, a right, turn to the right a little bit. And in Ephesians 4.14, it picks up mid-sentence. And the Apostle Paul says this, we should no longer be children. He's speaking spiritually. And what do, what do children, those who are new in the faith or young in the Lord or simply not deeply rooted in Christ, what do children look like spiritually? He says, tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. So every trendy new spiritual teaching by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. So Paul says, don't do that. But rather, speaking the truth in love may, and then underline this, grow up in all things into him. Grow up in all things into him who is the head. Christ. The reason it's important to study the Bible, and the way we do as a church here, sticking as close to the word as we can, is because in the church at large, there are always going to be what the Bible calls these winds of doctrine, some new teaching blowing through. You might remember uh, when the whole Da Vinci Code thing came out and the book came out, Christians were freaking out. Did you know that there's all these secret books of the Bible that nobody ever talks about? And people don't know, there's nothing new under the sun. That sort of Gnostic theology comes around about every 50 years and has been for almost 2,000 years since the church was started. It's nothing new, it's just a wind of doctrine, but who gets caught up in it? Those who are not deeply rooted in their faith, who don't understand what the Bible says about the truth. They're susceptible they can't recognize that they're false. You know, in, in, in the 70s, there was a movement called the shepherding movement. 
And things got really weird with this. They took the whole thing where it talks about Jesus being the shepherd and a pastor being a shepherd. And there was this whole weird thing where you need to find a pastor, but you need to not make any major life decision without your pastor's approval. So if you're going to buy a new car, you need to make an appointment with your pastor and make sure that he's signing off on this. You want to date somebody, you need to meet with your pastor and make sure he's signing off on it. I don't get the appeal. I don't have that much time. And I don't care that much. <laughs> I'm just being honest. So this was a whole movement in the 70s and people would go to church and they'd go up to the pastor and say, I just want you to know I'm bringing myself under the umbrella of your authority and I am not gonna do anything unless you approve it first. And this was a big thing in the 70s. Then in the 90s when, when I was growing up in the church, there was the holy laughter movement and this was the real move of God. This is what it really looks like is you lose control and laugh involuntarily. These different winds of doctrine, they blow in and they blow out, but they usually leave people as spiritual wrecks, very disillusioned about their faith, no deep roots, sort of left with the feeling, well, what, what was that? What did I just do for the last 10 years of my life? What was that? Paul says, be careful, be careful. What's the antidote? He says, you can protect yourself by growing up in the faith, by becoming solid in the faith and in your knowledge of God's word. He says, that's how you protect yourself from being caught up, from being taken advantage of spiritually. All right, next to that, next to what we just read, write Colossians 2.16. Colossians 2.16. And you'll just be going to the right a little bit in your Bibles. You'll see Philippians and then Colossians is the next little book. Colossians 2.16. Paul is going to continue to give warnings. And he says this in Colossians 2.16. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come. But the substance is of Christ. So people were starting to point to all these issues which were really non-issues instead of pointing to Jesus. He goes on and says, let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility. However, your Bible says that Paul is talking about the idea being a lie, that you are somehow more spiritual if you deny yourself everything and live like a monk, you know? Hey, have you seen this movie? No, I don't have a TV. Everything's of the devil. Okay, well, you know, do you want to go to the mall? Oh, I don't go to the mall. It's a heathen establishment. What do you do? Well, I generally stay in my room alone in a monastery far away from people and don't interact with anybody and do my best to speak as little as possible. And Paul says, listen, what, what are you doing? He says, that's false humility. It doesn't accomplish anything. It's all these meaningless actions to make people think that you're spiritual but it doesn't change your heart at all. It means nothing. He goes on, and speaking of letting no one cheat them of their reward, he says, and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. There's so much we could talk about here. We don't have time to go into everything. So let me just highlight a couple of things. You'll notice that it says Sabbaths or Sabbath days. There was a big argument in the early church about which day you could have church on. So there were the hardliners who said, listen, the Sabbath is Saturday. You've got to do church on a Saturday or it doesn't count. It's sin and God is horribly displeased with you. And there were other people saying, listen, we're, we're going to do it on Sunday because uh, it's kind of awkward and can create some problems with the local Jews if we do it at the same time that they're doing synagogues. So we'll do it on a Sunday, and it's also the day that we believe Jesus rose from the dead, so Sunday's gonna be our day of worship. And the hardliners were known as Sabbatarians. And Paul was saying, listen, listen, you're missing the whole point. It's not about what day of the week you gather as the church. It's about the fact that you gather as the church on any day. That's what it's all about. And he says, so be careful when someone says, did you know that it's only biblical to worship on this one day? Only one day? And then you'll notice how it talks about the worship of angels. The worship of angels. Very interesting because Jehovah's Witnesses claim to worship Jesus, but they believe Jesus is really Michael the archangel. 
So that's one blasphemy, okay? And then they will worship Jesus as an angel. That's two blasphemies, okay? They're just doubling down here. And right here we have a warning in the Bible against worshiping angels. So whoever a Jehovah's Witness is worshiping, it's not Jesus. It's not Jesus. And when you read this, I hope a little bit of this just breaks your heart because you find believers getting caught up in this stuff. And I know God is not surprised by anything, but if he was, I would have to think he would be thinking, are you kidding me? This one's like a freebie, you know? The gospel like came from a vision from another angel. They believe Jesus is an angel. He's the brother of Satan. Like, like what? This is an easy one for you guys. And like, no, it makes sense. That can only happen if you have no idea what the Bible says. Paul talks about the danger of people who've claimed to receive visions that are contrary to what the Bible says. Even today, there are corners of Christianity where people will stand up and say, I have a vision from the Lord. No, a new one, a fresh revelation. And because this is a fresh revelation, it's a more recent revision. It overrides, it supersedes what's in the Bible because this is a word for today. And then they'll usually misquote something like, God says I'm doing a new thing, new wine, all that sort of stuff and pull things horribly out of context. But there are churches today who believe that Jesus is saying new things that are contrary to scripture and they override scripture because they're new. So just tuck that away and remember what Paul wrote. Then you'll notice that it also says, let no one judge you in food or in drink. We know that excess is wrong. The Bible says be mastered by nothing. We know that addiction is wrong. But the Bible doesn't actually teach that eating or drinking certain things is wrong. They didn't have McDonald's at the time, so we'll just have to use our own discretion on that. And that may freak out some of the people from your church background, because here's what I found, is it's like, do, uh, do you believe it's wrong to have a glass of wine? And many churches, their stance is in, no, of course not. Do you? No. Why? Well, because I think it's really sin. That's really what they're saying. It's like, well, you talk like it's sin. You act like it's sin. So what do you really believe here? In case you don't know, Jesus' first miracle is turning water into wine and good wine. Really, really good wine. He made sure that we knew that. Jesus wanted us to know I don't make the cheap stuff. Only the best. Only the best. So don't let anybody say, hey, this is sin. Now certainly if you've dealt with that in the past, for some of us, we can't touch a drop, shouldn't touch a drop. Be wise. But that's because of our weakness. That's not because something is a sin. Now next to that, I want you to write 1 Timothy 4.1. 1 Timothy 4.1. 1 Timothy 4.1. We're going to turn to the right through 1st and 2nd Thessalonians and get to 1st Timothy 4. Paul's going to share a verse about the time in which we live. 1st Timothy 4.1. He says, now the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, expressly says, so this is how it's going to happen, that in latter times, it just means the last times or the last days, some will depart from the faith. How are they going to do that? giving heed or paying attention to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. Paul says in the last days, people are going to fall away from the faith and they're going to pay attention to deceiving spirits, to other teachings. And if you were to look at church history, there's always been weird people, okay, always. But over the last couple of hundred years, if you looked at church history, you'll find there's been an explosion of cults and false belief systems coming out of Christianity. Just an explosion of things that have really gained some traction. Whether it's the Unity School of Christianity or Christian Science or Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses, these are all, in the context of history, brand new belief systems. Bible says in the last days there's going to be a lot of people who fall away from the faith and get caught up in these things that are not the gospel. And they're going to get caught up because they have no idea what the gospel really is. I'm going to suggest that as we get closer and closer to Jesus returning for his church, this phenomenon of people falling away from the church is going to continue. In fact, it's probably only going to 
accelerate. Now, why do I say that? Because the general trend in the Western church is moving further and further away from Scripture, further and further away from the things that ground you deeply in your faith so that you get to the point where you know five great ways to master your personal finances, but you have no idea how to discern the truth from a lie. That's where the Western church is moving right now, and that's just something you need to know. So what do we do? What do we do? Well, next to those verses, I want you to write verse 13 or V13. Verse 13, and then we're just going to go down chapter 4 to verse 13, where Paul says, this is what you do. He says, till I come, give attention to reading. He's speaking about the reading and teaching of Scripture. Give attention to reading, to exhortation, to encouragement, to doctrine, Paul says, stay in God's word, read it, study it together, encourage each other with it. Make sure that every person understands what the Bible says. Next to that, I want you to write Hebrews 9.27. Hebrews 9.27. And then you'll be turning to the right. You'll go into 2 Timothy, Philemon, and then you'll hit Hebrews. Hebrews 9.27. And this is just a a little something for you right here. Hebrews 9.27 says this. And as it is appointed for men to die once. I want you to underline die once. But after this, and then underline the judgment. Paul says it is appointed for men to die once. And then after this, the judgment. Why is that so important? Because reincarnation is a really trendy idea in spirituality. The Bible teaches, no, you die once, then there's the judgment. So the Unity School of Christianity, as we said, holds that Jesus didn't die on the cross to save you, but rather as a person has just been reincarnated through the years. And as you are continuing to be reincarnated through the years, the hope is that you're becoming a better and better person working through your issues like Jesus did and ultimately ascending to oneness with the universe. So their entire belief system, along with several other massive belief systems, especially Eastern ones, are based on a theology of reincarnation. Paul says that's not true. This is the main tenet of Buddhism. I just want to talk to you about how deceptive Satan is with Buddhism. You know, in the Western world, Buddhism is highly romanticized. If you're a guy who just wants to get girls, that's a pretty trendy thing to have. Like, yeah, I'm a Buddhist, man. I just like to be at one with everything. So they come across and they push this vibe like they're these peace-loving, enlightened beings. This is how you can judge a religion. Find a country or a place in the world where the tenets and the teachings of that religion are followed devoutly. Find a place in the world where they do that and then examine it. See what it looks like when everybody in a culture follows the teachings of Buddhism to the T. Let me tell you what it looks like in places like Tibet. They spit on, abuse, and intentionally mistreat anyone with any type of deformity or handicap because they believe if you have that, it's the result of your karma catching up with you from your last life. So they're helping you by treating you like crap. That's what Buddhism believes. And that's what it looks like when it's all played out. I've seen an entire documentary on it. Not a Christian documentary, just a documentary on human rights. It's shocking. It's shocking. If you want to know what the world looks like under Islam, we actually have multiple examples you can go look at right now. Anybody want to live there? No, nobody wants to live there. Nobody wants to live there. I find it interesting on the subject of reincarnation too. When you talk to people, they'll say, yes, actually in a previous life, and there are always these wonderful, fantastic things, right? I was actually uh, the Shah of uh, a Middle Eastern province in a previous life. I was a princess, you know. I was, uh, I was part of the Knights Templar, actually. And I was, nobody ever has like, you know, I'm really stoked about this life because I, I went under hypnosis and discovered that in the, my previous life, I just sold cow manure. That's all I did. Nobody ever has that story, right? I was a medieval trash collector in a previous life. Nobody ever has that story. There are always these amazing, romanticized, idealized things. I was Einstein in a previous life, you know. 
It's like, huh, sure, sure, I'm happy for you. So next to that, I want you to write 2 Peter 2.1. 2 Peter 2.1. You're just gonna continue to the right through James, 1 Peter, and then 2 Peter 2. 2 Peter 2, verse 1. But there were also false prophets among the peoples, even as there will be false teachers, and then underline among you, among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even, and then underline, denying the Lord who bought them, denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many, underline many, will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. That's interesting because Peter says you you need to know that the most dangerous false teachers are going to come from among you, among the church. Hopefully not this church, but the church, capital C. And they're going to go so far from the Bible that they're going to deny the Lord who bought them. They're going to deny Jesus who bought them. Here's what I think that means. I don't think it means they're going to stand up and say, no, Jesus isn't important. I think what you're going to find is they're just going to pull your focus away from Jesus to other things. And as time passes, you'll notice that Jesus is not a part of their ministry in any way, shape, or form. His name just never seems to come up. It's never seemed to get around to talking about him, to talking about the cross. And the idea that we get from this is that somebody had to purchase them. Somebody had to pay something for you and I to receive salvation. You have Christian Science, the Unity School of Christianity, and all these groups emerging who deny that we had to be purchased. They deny that Jesus had to die for us on the cross. They deny the Lord who bought them. And then you'll notice in verse 2, it says that the sad thing is many will follow their destructive ways because of whom? the way of truth will be blasphemed. And the idea is that we're all gonna get lumped together. When people talk about Christians, people are gonna think that term applies to Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, Christian scientists, that we're all part of the same family. And nothing could really be further from the truth. But we're all gonna be lumped together. You think, how is that gonna happen? As a pastor, I can tell you it is happening right now. It's happening because we live in a world where we believe the most important thing if you're a Christian is to get along with everybody. And I always love to point out, well, then Jesus didn't do it right. (laughs) But we hold up this idea that if you're a good Christian, if you're a good church, you'll get along with everybody. Everybody will love you. And especially if, if there's another church, certainly you guys should get along, even if they believe something completely different to you. Paul says, says, listen, be be careful. The most dangerous false teachers are gonna come from within the church. And people are gonna get caught up in their ministry and all of a sudden you're gonna realize Jesus isn't a part of their ministry. It just never seems to come up. And everyone's gonna wanna say, we're all one, We're, we're all the same really. This is happening right now in the States with Mitt Romney, who's a possible next president of the United States. So you have Christian groups who want to get their foot in the door with him. So you have major Christian universities inviting him to speak at their commencement speeches. You have major Christian ministries taking everything about Mormonism off their website because we all need to get along. We all really believe the same thing. Dangerous, dangerous. From there, next to that, I want you to write 1 John 2. 1 John 2, verse 18. 1 John 2, 18. And you'll just be turning to the right just a page or two. 1 John 2, 18. This is what the Apostle John writes. He says, little children, it is the last hour. Underline the word last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come, by which we know that it is the last hour. And the idea is that the Antichrist is actually not a person, it's a spirit. It is a spirit that is anti-Christ. It is against Jesus. And there have been many Antichrists. We would logically say that Nero is an Antichrist. Hitler was an Antichrist. 
Christ, these people who rise up in history and just have a hatred that goes beyond logic for God's people and for Christianity and for the church. There have been many antichrists throughout history. John says, as more and more of this takes place, you'll know you're getting closer and closer. And then in verse 19, I want you to underline those first five words. They went out from us. They went out from us. So he's writing to a church and telling them these men are going to come out of the church. They're going to come out of the church, but they're going to start their own distinct ministries. And he says, that's important. That's how you're going to know who they are. And he says, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest so that it would be shown that none of them were of us. So that's a neat promise because in his word, Jesus is saying, listen, the, the real danger ultimately is not these false prophets rising up and taking over good churches and making them bad. They're going to rise up within the church and then they're going to go start their own churches and their own ministry. But he says, be careful, because the way they're going to do that, they're not going to say, I'm starting my own church, doing a church plant, because, you know, if you want to be antichrist, you really have to have your own church. It's not going to be on their flyer. It's going to be in different clothing. This is just my two cents, but I think sometimes what it looks like is, you know, we want to start a church because I wanted to start a church that would just meet people where they're at. And, and we just felt like when you're singing songs about the blood of Jesus, that's just weird to people who've never been to church. When you get all into the cross and sin, people don't want to hear that stuff. So we wanted to start a church where we could just break them in gently, gently, gently. And then you find out that there's no plan to ever go further than that. And suddenly the church has been going for a decade and there's still people in the church who've been going there for seven years that don't even know that they need to be saved because somehow Jesus got denied. And everything looks good. And everyone says, well, isn't this wonderful that there are all these people who love church? And John would say, that's not church. That's not the gospel. Be careful. Be careful. He says in verse 20, but you have an anointing from the Holy One and you know all things. Speaking about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is in you. You can discern these things if you're paying attention. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and that no lie is of the truth. But who is a liar? But he who denies that Jesus is the Christ. Remember right at the beginning when we saw how the Bible talks about the Christ, the coming Messiah, will be God in the flesh? That's what John is talking about. Anyone who says that didn't happen, not playing for the same team. John goes on and says, he is Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. And then underline this next verse and then we'll talk about it. Underline, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father either. He who acknowledges the Son has the Father also. Therefore, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. John says it's the last hour. Many antichrists have come. The closer we get to Jesus returning for his church, the more you're going to hear from these voices that are antichrist, that seem to be against God, if you're not following what's going on in the Middle East and Iraq right now, man, there is anti-Christ spiritual activity going on right now. Christians being hunted down for being Christians. Christians are the most persecuted people group on the planet right now, today. Millions will die for Christ this year in our time. In verse 19, it says, they went out from us. So they're going to come from within the church, go out and start their own thing, but under the auspices of Christianity. But verse 23 is especially interesting because it says, whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. We live in a very, very pluralistic society, especially in Vancouver. I think being spiritual is pretty trendy. And what you'll find is that spirituality is okay. The concept of God is okay. In fact, any other religion is pretty much okay until you get to one name that's absolutely unacceptable. And that's the name of Jesus. If you want to start a fight, 
throw around the name of Jesus. Allah is fine, Krishna is fine, Buddha is fine. Jesus, now we got a problem. Verse 23 is in the Bible so that we remember that Jesus is the dividing line. He is God. Without him, you are not serving, following, or worshiping God. It doesn't get more clear than that. There are many religions, many spiritual people who want to take God as just this big concept and say you can get to God many ways. Jesus said no man comes to the Father except through the Son. I am the way, the truth, and the life. One way, you cannot get to the Father without going through the Son. It's a verse that destroys the idea of pluralism, that there are many different ways to God. Now next to that, write Jude 3. Jude 3. Jude is just a one-chapter book of the Bible. It's only going to be a page or two to the right. It's easy to miss, right? Jude 3. And then we're going to go down to that third verse of Jude. Third verse of Jude. And he writes, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you, encouraging you to contend. So to fight earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Judah's saying, listen, I, I need you to fight for your faith. So I need you to grab a hold of the word of God, get into it, and get the information you need. You need to fight. You need to not be a spiritual pushover. He's looking at them and he's saying, I'm worried about you because... I don't think you know enough to even take a position when somebody says something that is false. You don't know how to stand up for what you believe. He says you need to fight for it. Paul says the truth was, get this though, it was handed down, it was delivered to the saints. And in the New Testament, the word saints just means believer, just means believer, Christians. So the gospel wasn't given to an institution, a denomination, or one specific church, it was given to the saints. It was given to all believers. And I want you to underline the three words, once for all. Once for all. The idea is that once this gospel was handed down, once for all, there would be no new revelation. There would be no new gospel, no new anything. And while God gives us personal direction in our lives through the Holy Spirit, he's never going to add to, change, or remake the gospel. It's in stone. It's a fixed point it was once for all given to all believers just got a couple more here now next to that i want you to write first peter 3 15 first peter 3 15 just turn to the left a few pages you'll go through three two one john second peter and then first peter 3 15 first peter 3 15 Jude wrote, and now Peter writes in 1 Peter 3.15, he says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Your translation might say it better. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. And always be ready to give a defense, underline defense, to everyone who asks you for a reason, underline reason, for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Underline with meekness and fear. So first you need to sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. Jesus needs to be Lord in your heart. He has to be number one on a list of one, the priority above all other priorities. Then he says you need to be able to give a defense. You need to be able to explain why Jesus gives you hope. Why? The reason so many people are caught up in false teachings and carried off is because for the most part Christians don't know why they believe what they believe. They have no idea. Do you see where it says with meekness and fear? Other translations will say with gentleness and reverence. Here's what it means. It means you can't be a jerk for Jesus. We're all Canadians, so I don't think this is really a point we need to worry about here, but uh, don't be a jerk for Jesus. Just remember the goal is never to win the debate. The goal is never to win the argument. The goal is to represent Jesus even in how you talk to them. The goal is to represent Jesus. Next to that, I want you to write 2 Corinthians 11.3. 2 Corinthians 11.3. We're going to be turning back to the left through Galatians, Ephesians, and Colossians. 
then you'll come to 2 Corinthians 11.3. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, and he says this. He says, but I fear lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus, underline another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit, underline a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, underline different gospel, which you have not accepted, he says, I'm worried that you'll put up with it. Paul is saying, guys, if somebody shows up and shares with you a different Jesus, a different gospel, or a different spirit, you seem to be embracing it. You seem to be saying, yeah, hallelujah, that's awesome. He says, you don't know the truth enough to understand that these things are false, and you're accepting them as truth. Nobody ever makes counterfeit $21 bills. Nobody makes counterfeit $21 bills. Nobody says, you know what? We could bump up our profit by tacking an extra dollar onto our counterfeit bill. Nobody does this. Why? Because it would be obvious. It would be obvious that it's a forgery. So what is the goal of counterfeiting? The goal is to make the counterfeit as indistinguishable from the real thing as possible. That's the goal. To make it look, smell, and taste, and feel just like the original. But what makes it a fake? Well, it's still not the original. It's still not the real thing. And if I try to buy something with fake money, sooner or later I'm going to hit one of those stores where they put it under the black light to detect whether it's real or fake. And when I get caught with a counterfeit, I'm going to be taken off to prison. Here's why this is so important. Satan has been working overtime since the church was founded to create a variety of counterfeit Jesuses, a variety of counterfeit Gospels, to many, to the untrained eye, they might look just like the real thing. But they're fakes. We used to have a saying when I was a teenager about girls, and it was, uh, what was it? Good from far, but far from good. That's how it would usually go. <laughs> I, was, I was 16 once. We'd always say, someone would be like, man, look at that girl over there. And well, you know, if we wanted to give them a loving warning, we'd say, just remember, man, good from far, far from good. Oh, okay. And here's the deal, a fake Jesus and a fake gospel can't save you from your sins. A fake Jesus and a fake gospel can't rescue you from hell. A fake Jesus and a fake gospel can't secure eternity for you in heaven in the presence of Jesus. So because we're Canadian, hard lines, lines in the sand being black and white tends to make many of us very, very uncomfortable. And that's why the usual objection is, but they're such nice people. They're such nice people. That's why next to what we just read, I want you to write verse 13, right? Verse 13. We're just gonna go down in 2 Corinthians 11 to verse 13. And this is what Paul says. He says, for such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming or disguising themselves into apostles of Christ. They look very much like the original. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms or disguises himself into an angel of light. By the way, Moroni, the angel who gave Joseph Smith Mormonism, claimed to be, their words, an angel of light. Again, God's gotta be like, this is a freebie. Come on, like this is easy. Paul continues verse 15. He says, therefore, it's no great thing. He says, it's natural. If his ministers, Satan's ministers, also transform, if they also disguise themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. They won't be accepted. They're forgeries. They're fakes. But don't be surprised when they're nice people. The alternative wouldn't be very effective for Satan, right? It's not going to work if anybody shows up to your door and says, like, hey, moron. You believe the wrong thing. Why don't you come to my religion? It's inspired by Satan. He's awesome. Ha, ha, ha. It wouldn't work. So of, of course they show up, you know, and they've got the sweet old lady or the really nice, smiling, happy people. The Bible even says, of course. Satan's not stupid. He's evil. He's not stupid. The next that, I want you to write 1 Corinthians 15. This is going to be the last one. 1 Corinthians 15. Just turn a few pages 
to the left, 1 Corinthians 15. And this is the end of the first letter that Paul writes to the church in Corinth. We'll just start at verse one in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received and in which you stand. This is the gospel that makes you stand, not another gospel. By which also you are saved if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So here's the gospel. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day. JW's Christian Scientists, Uni School of Christianity and more don't believe Jesus was ever raised from the dead. They believe he ascended spiritually but was never physically raised in his body from the dead. Paul says, first of all, this is the starting point. You've got to get this. And he goes on and says, according to the scriptures, verse five, and that he was seen by Cephas, just Peter, and then by the 12, the 12 disciples. The idea is that In order for it to be the gospel, there are a few things that have to be in there. This is what the gospel is. The Christ Jesus was God in the flesh who came to the earth. Jesus, God in the flesh, died on the cross for our sins. He paid the price that we would have had to pay and he saved us from our sins forever. When he died, he was buried in his physical body in the ground for three literal days and he is right now somewhere in that physical body. It's a pretty mind-blowing concept because three days later, his body came back to life. That's the gospel. Paul says that's the gospel. Anything less than that is not the gospel. This is mandatory. So be very, very careful when someone shows up and preaches another gospel, another gospel. As we've walked through this, I think we'd all agree that there are a number of warnings, especially in these last days, about false teachings that are going to multiply. They're going to gain some traction. So as the pastor of New Hope Church, part of my job is to make sure that if this is your church home, you are taught the truth of God's word, that I do everything I can to make us a church where we are grounded in the word of God, that we're not able to be caught up in lies, in falsehoods, in false teachings that we're all able to discern because we know what the truth is. We are able to hold up the truth against the lie and reveal it for what it is. It's my joy to get to do that. That's where we're gonna end today. I hope that you're equipped. If you wrote that down in your Bibles, take the Bible home, put it in your Bible. But hopefully now you know some key things and where they are in the Bible. And even if you think, man, you know, there's a verse about that, and you can at least know, maybe it was the seventh verse in here, but you can flip back and forth, and you can at least find it. You can find it now. You can be a little bit better equipped. So would you bow your head and close your eyes? And the first thing I want to do in this moment is just having done our best today to present the gospel and the truth of God's word as clearly as possible. We always want to give an opportunity for anybody here who would say, you know, I have heard the truth today and I want to respond to the truth. I want to respond to Jesus Christ. I recognize that he is the only way. If that's you for the first time today, would you just raise your hand? I'm not going to embarrass you or ask you to do anything. I just want to know that that's you. Let me know if that's you. Then for the rest of us, let me just pray for us. Father, thank you that your truth is not a mystery, God. You have made it plain, and as Paul wrote, God, our desire is that nobody would steal or take from us just the glorious, simple truth of the gospel, that you have done everything for us. You have given everything to us, and so in return, we give everything to you. We give ourselves to you. You've done for us what we could not do for ourselves. Thank you for saving us, God. Thank you for healing us and for loving us and for making the truth clear to us. And what a glorious truth it is that the God of heaven and earth took the form of a man, came down and lived a perfect life, was tempted as we are tempted, 
suffered more than any of us have ever suffered. Had to confront discouragement and depression, broken relationships, betrayal, all of it. And you say the reason for that is so that you could be our high priest before God the Father. So that you could be familiar with the sufferings of being human. So that you could be a God who knows what it's like to be one of us. Not a God who looks down on high with disdain, but who humbled himself and came to the earth to be like us and die the death that we deserved. And then, Father, we believe that after three days you rose again, exalted by the Father in victory over sin and over death, over every principality and over every power, and that you are now the name above all names, the King above all kings, seated above everything and everyone else, above it all, worthy of our praise and worthy of our worship, God. Thank you for loving us, Jesus.